I am Luke Calvert, the student pastor here at Stones Crossing. And man, isn't it good to know that Christ is magnified in our lives and that we are just sons and daughters who get to relish in the goodness of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. That's the goodness of the gospel. I think the message is over. I could just sit, go sit down. Man, it's good news that we get to rest in the truth of Christ as sons and daughters. And so what I want to do this morning, before we even get into the message, uh, Pastor Scott said something to me when he sent me uh, what I'll be preaching on. He, said, he sent me the passage and just said, just preach Christ. Just preach Christ. That's enough. So the plan this morning is just to preach Christ. And I want to take a moment for us and remind us why we're here. Why do we gather on Sunday mornings? Well, we gather because we are the body of believers standing arm in arm, worshiping arm in arm, and listening to the teaching of the word of God together, being lifted up into Christ Jesus. And I don't want us to forget that. This isn't a routine. This isn't just something that comes around on the calendar each week. This is the greatest day of the week right here, is that we get to gather as believers in Jesus and stand upon his rock and not our own. So I want to give you just a second. You got 30 seconds of your own time. I want you to pray this prayer. Lord, would you give me more of Christ and less of myself? More of Christ and less of myself. You got 30 seconds. Ready, roll. Father, would you just remind us this morning that when we gather, it's just not something that's a routine, Father, but it's something where we get to joyfully come and celebrate the goodness of Jesus Christ. God, would you remind us that fear does not belong in a life of a believer of Jesus. Fear is cast out when the name of Jesus is even whispered. We are undeserving of that. But yet you've still chosen to give us that and to give us it in full. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and grab a Bible probably in the very front um, of the seat in, in front of you. Uh, you, got, you guys can thank Pastor Dave for our cool new seating arrangement. We got it going on here. I don't know if you noticed, but we don't have the weird white piece of paper where people are coming in like guessing which way I'm going. Um, but we got this cool seating arrangement that's a little bit more spread out, but also uh, we have more chairs in here, especially preparing for Easter. And so be inviting for Easter. We're preparing that, you know, more people would be here for Easter, that we can worship the name of Christ together. So go ahead and grab a Bible and turn to John chapter 15. As uh, we have been in this sermon series about the I am statements of Christ, uh, it's my hope that a lot of us in this morning are going to hear that we're preaching on John chapter 15 and say, you know what, I've heard that story before. I am the vine and we are the branch, right? So go ahead and turn. If you have one of the Bibles here in the pew, it's on page 901. 901, it's always helpful for me. I, I need, a, I need that, uh, that page marker sometimes to know where to turn. So if you're willing and able, would you go ahead and stand for the reading of the word of God? John chapter 15, 1 through 13 says this. I am the vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because the word that I have spoken to you, abide in me and I in you. 
As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no, no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. This is the reading of the word for the people of God. You may be seated. So this morning, I got actually the opportunity to preach a couple months back and was preaching about the Upper Room Discourse in John chapter 16, so we're just moving it back one chapter this morning, and we're still in the Upper Room Discourse, so we haven't been in the Upper Room Discourse for two months now, but we're in the Upper Room Discourse, and what's happening is Jesus is dining with his disciples for the very last time before his death, burial, and resurrection, and so what Jesus is doing is he's readying the disciples for the work of the kingdom of God, right? And even though, we're gonna see this in a little bit, even though maybe some of them won't even believe what's going on in the, in the story, Jesus is trying to ready his disciples for the work that they can do in Christ. And he's gonna remind them of who he is and what he has done for them. And so look with me back in verse one. We're just gonna walk through the entire ch- uh, passage this morning, verse by verse. My first point that we need to understand this morning, when Jesus is making a stark claim in, in, in John chapter 15, verse 1, he says this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Maybe for us today, we don't know this imagery that he's trying to call upon. I mean, sure, we know what a vine is, but to the disciples, when he would have said, I am the true vine, he's immediately making a claim to the disciples, that is, that is profound. That when they hear it, they would have made this connection immediately. That in the Old Testament, he's, Jesus often does this. He's drawing upon the Old Testament to make a large claim about himself. And what he says here is that I am the true vine. Why would he say true vine? If he's making a claim about just imagery of vine and branches, I don't think he would have said, I am the true vine. But he says, I am the true vine. Why? Because Israel was often referred to as a plant or a vine in the Old Testament. In fact, Psalms 80 verse 8 refers to uh, Israel like this. The Lord brings a vine out of Egypt and into the wilderness. Right? We know the story that Israel was in captivity. Right? And God got them out of captivity and into exile into the wilderness. But something often followed with Israel. Right? Although they were the vine of God and they were the chosen people of God, what often followed when God was faithful to Israel? Their unfaithfulness. 
right? They get out to the wilderness and they actually begin complaining to God, can I head back into captivity, right? This is ridiculous. You're providing bread and water for me. What more could we ask for, right? But what happens is even when Israel is referred to as the vine, it's also often followed with their inability to follow after the Lord and, and, and bear fruit specifically, So in this passage, what Jesus is doing right off the bat, in verse 1, the first four words, I am the true vine. Is that five? Yeah, five. The first five words. I wasn't great at math, okay? The first five words, what Jesus is doing is he's making a stark claim to his disciples that's saying, I am the true vine. What you couldn't do, what all of Israel could not do, I'm here to do for you. And that's why we sing about Christ. That's why Christ is the pinnacle of the thing in which we believe. That's why being a Christian means to be a little Christ, because he is the pinnacle of our faith. And what Israel could not do, and what we cannot do, Jesus Christ came to do for us. And I don't want us to miss that this morning. In the first five uh, words in this passage, he's making a huge claim. And he follows it up by saying, and my father is the vine dresser, right? So what does a vine dresser do? We'll get to this just a little bit later. But a vine dresser goes around of all the vineyards, and he begins to pluck the vines. I'm sure you've heard this uh, analogy before. What the vine dresser does is he's overseeing the vine. And in fact, in his overseeing, he will go and he'll cut uh, branches off that are dying, and he'll even begin to cut away at the vine, Not this core of the vine, but he'll begin to cut away at the sides of the vine so that it would grow back stronger and stronger and stronger. And in doing that, more branches would come from the vine. And with more branches comes more fruit. So the father is the overseer, and the son is the very vine in which we are attached to as the branch. You see, Jesus is saying, I got this. I will, fuf- I will be the fulfillment of the law. I, I will do all the things that Israel was, ought have done. I will do those for you. But he says something interesting just in verse, tr- verse 2. He says, in verse 2, he says, He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes to make it even more fruitful. It's not often that we think about when we're falling after Jesus. You ever been in just in a, an awesome spiritual season in your life? And you're like, I'm just running after the Lord. I'm reading the gospel and it's exciting me. I'm getting up at 5 a.m., which is extra spiritual, right? You, you get up before the sun, you're like, oh my gosh, look what I'm doing, you know? And then you just hit this season of just difficulty and a season of rockiness, a season of confusion, Right? What, what he says here, and it's not what I expect when I start to really follow after Jesus, but if you abide in me, if you bear fruit, he says you can expect one thing. And it's not a shiny car. It's not the perfect job. He says you can expect pruning. Oh, great. This is exciting. This is exciting. He says you can expect pruning. Now, what is pruning? Pruning here, now hear me say this. Pruning in this passage specifically is speaking about the Lord, the the Father, the vine dresser coming in and cutting away things at our life that don't belong. 
And for some of us, this is the, the very most difficult seasons of our life. But he says something before the pruning process. He says, you will bear fruit if you abide in me. Now church, before we talk about pruning, we must talk about this. I want you to hear me say this clearly. This isn't a judgment call, right? This isn't me casting shame. But this is the truth. Because of what Jesus says in John 15, to be a Christian is inherently to bear fruit. To be a Christian is inherently to bear fruit. You can't abide in Christ and not bear fruit. Now it's not the legalism that we like to jump into that we think of as bearing fruit. It's not the action-based steps that must we take to earn the love of God. That's not what I'm speaking about in this moment. That's not what John chapter 15 is speaking about right here. We have to be careful when speaking and defining fruit or we'll often turn into saying, I'm going to make Luke God and what Luke does will be a ladder to God. Right? I'm sure if you've fallen into that, I've fallen into that over and over and over again. I remember calling my friend on the phone, my, like maybe halfway through my freshman year of college. Right? And he, he got caught up in drinking or whatever. I called him on the phone, he's a brother in Christ, and I called him and I said, listen here, let me know when you want to be serious about your faith. And he hung up. And I thought, look at me go. Look at me go, man. I got this figured out. But really what I was doing, I, I, was, I was judging him because of who I thought I was. My standing is the lowest place in Christ Jesus. But yet because of him, I find a high standing. Not because of me. And so bearing fruit is this, Galatians 5, through 23, which is only possible if we abide in Christ. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. What does it mean to bear fruit? It means to look like Christ Jesus. So that's the first thing we must understand this morning is we must know the vine. We must be attached to the vine to know what it means to live out a life worthy of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. We sit here and we sing about it and we praise him and we focus our eyes upon him away from the world and away from ourselves so that we can bear fruit. Because Jesus will be exactly what we could not be over and over and over and over. When speaking about the fruit of the Spirit, when thinking about the things that happen and and that come from us abiding in Jesus Christ, hear me say this, Jesus is the perfect joy. Jesus is the perfect peace. Jesus is the perfect patience. Jesus is the perfect goodness. Jesus is the perfect faithfulness. Jesus is the perfect kindness, and Jesus has perfect self-control, amen? We cannot do that. What does he say in the passage? Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. This morning, it's about Christ, and it's not about us. Pruning can be the absolute hardest season of our lives. Understanding fruit and understanding pruning. Calvin says of pruning like this. Speaking of Jesus, he says, 
He speaks of pruning or cleansing because our flesh abounds in trappings and destructive vices, also known as sin. And it is too fertile in producing them over and over and over. And because they grow and multiply without end, if we are not cleansed or pruned by the hand of God. When he says that vines are pruned, that they may yield more abundant fruit, he shows what ought to be the progress of believers in the course of true religion. You see, bearing fruit is not the religiosity, it's not the morality that we like to make it out to be. It's just abiding into Christ. I know I've used the word abiding over and over and over. What does that mean? The very definition of abiding is this. That we would be up, oh sorry, excuse me, sorry. The definition of abiding is this, to remain stable or fixed in something. To remain stable or fixed into something. Church, nothing closer in the world than abiding. To abide means to be into something. And this is exactly what Christ has called us to be. There was a friend of mine, and I remember having this pruning conversation with him. Like, look, the Lord is going to use some of your hardest seasons, some of the most difficult moments in your life. He's going to use that for the glory of the Lord. And he said, well, I'm actually pretty comfortable right now. I, I, I don't, A, I don't want pruning. B, I think I'm pretty good right now. He used the C word, which is we've got to be careful. He said, I'm comfortable. And he goes off to college it's about a year ago. He goes off to college, and he's got all of his hope and dreams put in college. Goes off, gets his apartment with his buddy, and what happens? March rolls around, right? COVID hits, and all of a sudden, what you, what you thought college was was completely taken away from you in about a day. Instead of being around and finding new community and doing new things, he found his vices in other things that he shouldn't have, and he found loneliness and found nothing more than the very end of himself. I remember him calling, on the, calling me on the phone saying, Luke, I am uncomfortable. And today he is running fervently after the Lord Jesus because he came to the very end of himself and said, I can't do it anymore. I was comfortable, now I'm miserable. And the only one that can save me is the hope and trust in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. James 1, 2-4 makes it clear when speaking about pruning. So pruning is two things. Pruning is one, the Lord using difficult moments and difficult seasons of our life for the glory of the Lord. And I'm going to tell you this, church, some of you right now are in some of the difficult, most hard times of your life. I want to tell you, stand firm. Don't go anywhere, but look towards Christ. Because he is the only one that can give us the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the self-control. And the second thing that pruning is, is the Lord pruning away sins in our life. I remember when I got baptized, the next day I woke up and I'm like, wait, wait a minute. I don't feel any different. What's going on? I still got arms and legs and... I'm still struggling with different sins. 
the Lord is going to prune my life over time in taking that, those sins away, those struggles away that I struggled with 10 years ago that I don't anymore because I'm following after the Lord Jesus. James 1, 2-4 says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What's it say in verse 3? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. How many times have you heard the story? It was the hardest season of my life, but man, the Lord was using it for the glory of him. And he was shaping me in a way that I could not tell when I was in the storm. But when I came out of that storm, I was growing in a major way. Let's not look at pruning as something that the Lord is doing against us, but the Lord is using for us. And in, th- in thinking about what it means to abide into Christ, what it means to grow a plant, what it means for a vine to be healthy, church, we don't, take a, we don't go to the, gr- the store and buy this beautiful bouquet and have these flowers and sit them in the middle of the room or in the, in the middle of the house with no access to sunlight, no access to water, and us not care for it and be like, wait a minute, why did it die? No, we take that thing and we put it right up against the window. And we water it every day and we're watching it. Mine always tend to die, okay, even if I do all those things. The truth is we, we can't, that's the same goes true for our life in Christ. We don't sit our lives in the middle of the room and just get, don't care for it, tend for it, and water it and not be abiding in Christ and say, what happened, Lord? Why am I not growing? The Lord is going to use these different seasons in our life, and we have to be willing to say, you know what? The Lord is going to use this and redeem this moment in my life. So the first thing we must understand this morning is we must know the vine. Christ, be magnified in our life. First, know the vine, because without the vine, there is not the branches. And the second thing I want to focus on is to be a branch. That's my encouragement this, this morning. Isn't that great? Be a branch. We often like to begin with what it means to abide and, and talk, what it means to fervently run after the Lord. I'm going to do this, 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 and this, and this. But then Jesus kind of settles down the disciples in verse 3. Already you are clean because the word that I have spoken to you. This is my favorite verse in this entire passage. What does he say? He's about to tell them to follow after my commandments. He's about to tell them to bear fruit. But what does he first say? You are cleansed because of me. Not because of the works I'm about to ask you to do. Not because you followed after my commandments. But first, you are cleansed because of the word. What does John 1.1 1, 1 say? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Notice that the disciples are not cleansed after they do good deeds. But they're cleansed because the one who abided in the Father perfectly. You, see, you remember the story of the, uh, the, the adulterous woman and the accusers come and they, get, they get, gather Jesus around and she's standing there in front of a crowd. And you know what Jesus does? Jesus does this. He bends down on one knee and begins to draw in the sand. Why doesn't it, I, one question I have for God when I get to heaven, what did he draw? Just tell me. Does it tell me the story? What do they draw? But it doesn't matter. Because you know what? The, the attention of the crowd and the accusers turned from the accused onto Christ. 
immediately the gaze changes from the accused woman onto Christ Jesus, and that's what Christ does for you and I. He turns the gaze, which is, should be on us, for our guilty sin, undeserving life that we have in Christ, and he turns the gaze to Christ Jesus. And you know what? After Jesus gives of himself in that moment, he says, you may cast the first stone. Go ahead. And what? They go away. And he looks at the lady and he says, who is here to accuse you? Nobody. And then he says, go repent and believe and sin no more. But first he gave himself before he said, go and repent and believe and sin no more. The church, he does the same for us. That ought to be exciting for us. That ought to just give us an unbelievable amount of joy that Jesus Christ would do that for you and I. So what does it mean that you are cleansed by the word? It means that he is the one that does the work before he asks us to do anything. Verse four, now we come to the abiding. Now we come to the fruit bearing. And what does that mean? Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Like I said earlier, the definition of abiding is to remain stable or fixed into something. Nothing is closer than Christ is clothing us and covering us with the work that he has done for us. But, but. Here is often our human response because of sin in our life. This is often our response to the call to abide. Hear me say this. When we believe we have offended, we tend to avoid. When we believe that we have offended, there's an offense against our name, we tend to avoid. Let me give you a quick example. I think you all understand. My brother and I are hanging out at home with just mom. I say something to mom that I shouldn't have. Uh, I put my foot in my mouth. I probably told her to shut up, which was like the holy grail for me when I was growing up. I knew if I could really get her if I said that, never ended well. And my mom said, my mom said the words that I, I just never wanted to hear. Wait till your father gets home. And then she takes either the spoon or the belt and lays it on the table as a forewarning of the reckoning that's going to happen when he shows. Right? Now let me ask you a question. Did I respond to A or B? A is, I hear the garage door come up, knowing that dad's coming home, and I just run out there, open the door, and just grab him and say, Lord, you know, Lord, dad, I'm so glad to see you. Or what did I do B? Sprint to my room, close the door, lock it, and start layering up, baby. Layering up. Because I know what's to come. Of course I ran. Of course I ran. You know, I'm, I'm thinking on this end, my dad was probably like, Great, this is exactly what I wanted to do when I came home. Go get your son, right? You see, when we believe we've offended, we tend to avoid. When we believe we've offended, we tend to avoid. I'm a youth pastor. It's like the girlfriend, boyfriend in high school thing, okay? They're, when they are, start dating, they're attached at the hip, doing everything together. But the moment they break up, one's coming to 9 a.m., one's coming to 1045, you know what I mean? On Sunday night at, at, uh, at Motion and Transit, one sitting the far right side, one sitting the far left side, and they're like this, you know, focusing. They, got, they must have brand new shoes because all they can do is stare, look, focusing down, right? I see that all the time. Church, we must not approach Christ like this. 
The same way that the woman who was caught in adultery, the gaze was shifted from her onto Christ, we have the same invitation. We, we hear it like this. When we believe we've offended, we ought to run after Jesus. We ought to run after Christ Jesus. Remember the, the story of Peter, and just in this uh, uh, context, Peter is to come. Peter is just getting ready. When Jesus goes to be on trial, Peter says what to Christ? He says, one of you will uh, betray me three times before the alarm clock goes off in the morning by the crow. And Peter's like, Lord, I would never. He's like, well, it's, kind of, it's you. It's actually you, right? And so he goes on, and one of the times, a 12-year-old girl walks up to Peter, and he's in the crowd, and says, wait, wait, weren't you a follower of Jesus? No, 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 not me, not me. Anyway, he denies him three times and is embarrassed to know Jesus because he doesn't want the same accusation that Jesus is going to get. And then fast forward, when Jesus rises from the dead, and he goes out to meet the crowd, and it says that the disciples just went back to what they knew, so they're just working. They're like, we're working, we're going to keep our head down, and hopefully we don't get caught up in the same thing Christ did. But then it says the disciples saw Jesus coming on the water, and what was Peter's response? He rips off his garments and heads straight for Jesus. And just sprinting in the water, falls at his feet and says, Jesus, I need you. That's our response to whom we've offended, we desperately need to run after. That's what it means to abide in Christ. Abiding in Christ means that we have union with Christ. Hear me say this. Union with Christ means these things. We identify, participate, and we are incorporated into the Christ story. I'm going to tell you something, the most profound thing that I want you to know today, that if you forget everything else, which is likely, I want you to remember this line right here. What can be said of Christ can be said of you. That's not an overstatement. What can be said of Jesus in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension can be said of you. You are joining Christ in his story what can be said of Christ can be said of you. When we're united to Christ, we are knit to Christ who obeyed perfectly on our behalf. In his death, we are knit in the one who's paid fully for the sin of our lives. In his resurrection, we are knit to him who has triumphed over death. In his ascension, we are knit to him who's the very presence of the Father. In his ongoing work with the Father at the right hand in heaven, we are participants in God's mission as God's people. You hear that? We're knit to Christ Jesus. Where else would we go? Who else would we rather be knit to? Surely not our careers, our jobs, our cars. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not from yourselves, but is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us. First of all, we are saved through faith by grace, not that we may boast. And right after that, what's it say? For we are God's handiwork, created into Christ, a new humanity into Christ for the good work 
that he's prepared, prepared for us in advance. My third point this morning, if we understand that we know that Jesus is the vine, the second thing we understand is that he, we are the branch, and it's an honor to be a branch. The third thing we must get is we now bear fruit. Knowing the first two things, then we bear fruit. John 5, 6 through 13 says this. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it'll be done for you. By, his, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. What's it mean to now bear fruit? It means by the grace of God, being attached to the vine, not the ones that wither and, and burn, but the ones that are attached into Christ Jesus, we now bear fruit for the kingdom of God. You and I are joined into an opportunity to bear fruit for the kingdom of God. Think about this, this sentence here. The radical grace of the gospel transforms servanthood and what we see as labor into friendship. The radical grace of the gospel transforms servanthood into friendship. Only grace can free us to obey Jesus out of worship and no, other, and, and no longer out of fear or self-interest or self-preservation. Isn't that good news? Isn't that the good news? That now our fruit bearing is only because of the grace we've received. And it's radical grace at that. Verse 8 and 9 Focus on verse 8, 9, 11, and, we're gonna get, and I'll be done here. Verse 8 says this, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Church, I want to ask you two application questions this morning. Understanding the vine, understanding that we are the branches, what does it mean to bear fruit? Here's my questions for you. Very practical. I want you to be racking your brain as I ask you these questions. I'm not going to call out anybody, though. Don't worry about that. That's only on Sunday nights. No, I'm just kidding. When speaking of abiding, we must fill our lives with the things that stir our affections for Jesus. Church, what stirs your affections for Jesus? You ask that, do you ask that question often? What stirs your affections for Christ? What scenarios and moments and friendships and uh, what conversations with your spouse stir your affections for Jesus? Those are the conversations and scenarios we ought to be in often. What stirs your affections for Jesus? The second, second thing I have for us, what cuts, we must cut out anything that robs us of those affections. What are some things that you know to just turn your eyes from Jesus to self? What revs down our attention towards Christ? What pulls us away from our affections of Jesus? And here I'm just going to give you two examples of my, my life. Some are goofy, some are serious. What stirs my heart for Jesus? For me, it's gospel conversations with friends. 
just gospel conversations, man. What's Jesus doing in your life? How is he doing it? And, and what's going on? How are you sharing the gospel? How is he stirring things up in you? What are you loving that you didn't love a couple years ago because of what Christ has done? For me, it's reading the scriptures, breathing in the scriptures, just reading the word of God. Yeah, I don't mind understand every sentence, but reading the word of God is filling me up with his words. Praying in the shower, I'm a shower prayer. Okay, I just jam the music so that nobody can actually hear me. My wife hates this because if she's still asleep, we're in trouble. And uh, I love to pray in the shower. That's my place to pray, to focus. Jamming worship in the, mu- er, in the car, I love doing that. Early mornings in the quiet, just sitting with the Father. Like I said, 5 a.m., spirituality right there, baby. But with Baker, that's become a little bit more difficult, you know. Now it's like... 5 a.m., just not quiet. Now Baker's running around and stealing things and taking stuff off the wall and everything. Hearing other brothers and sisters singing in the rows on Sunday morning. What an encouragement that is. Speaking of getting back to church and all this stuff, it is such an encouragement when I'm sitting in the rows and hearing my brothers and sisters sing worship in front of me and behind me, and it's like lifting me up along with them. We come to church not so that I can find my place in my seat and just sit here and experience it and go home. We sit as a body of believers. And you are my encouragement. I hope to be an encouragement to you. Now here are some things that steal those affections away. And I know this. Doesn't mean I always avoid them. Obsessing over a sports team. Now, I know it's March Madness, so I hold this uh, very carefully. But if a 25-year-old misses a shot and it ruins my day, I probably ought to look at that. Spending time wasting away on social media with, breed, with breeds in me comparison, and I know that it does, that takes, takes away from my affections for Christ. Getting enveloped in political conversations. If anybody knows me, I, I hardly know who's president, let alone what's going on over there. The truth is... When I begin to have political conversations, I rise up on my stance, and my stance must be against your stance. So therefore, I have become God. I can't do that. That really takes away from my affections for Christ Jesus. And lastly, sarcasm for me steals joy often. I'll say things to my wife that is a joke, but it's serious. When I need to just be serious with her and uplift her into Christ Jesus, sometimes sarcasm can be that for me. What stirs your affections for Jesus? And I think you know this. I think you know these things. But what it means to bear fruit is to have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control, goodness. Right? What stirs your affections for those things? I'm going to close by saying this. Verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. What does it mean to abide in Christ and bear fruit? It means that 1 Peter 1, 8 to 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith in the salvation of your souls. What does it mean to be attached to Christ Jesus? Is to be filled with an inexpressible joy that our world cannot take away. Happiness comes and goes. The joy we have in Christ goes nowhere. That's the hope we have in Christ. Hear me say this as we close. The Father delights, the Father delights in involving us in his work. So let's just press in. Let's step into what Christ has for us.
and ask, what stirs our hearts for Christ? And let's run after those things. Don't run away as, an, as knowing that we are the offenser, you know, that, we, that we've offended. Don't flee. Run towards Christ. Say, Father, I don't have it figured out, but I know the foot, at the foot of the cross, it's even ground. That's what, we ha- that's what a life in Jesus is. Let's pray. Father, we are undeserving. You are so good. God, thank you for the opportunity for us to abide in you. God, thank you for the opportunity that we can have to say we don't run away. Although we are the offenders, we run towards the one who says, in my name, you are justified. In my name, you're made righteous. God, thank you so much that we get clothed with Christ, that we're covered in his righteousness. God, that when we one day will have a, t- uh, t- have a test for our lives, that we can look and say, it's because of Christ, not because of me. God, I pray for the people in this room. I pray for the people online that we would be, know and ask the question, what stirs our affections for Jesus? And make that first and foremost. And when we fail and we stumble and we fall, we still look upon Christ as our Lord and Savior. God, we're so undeserving of the grace in which you've given. But we thank you for who you are and what you've done. And it is in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen.